Well, uh, let's pray before we dig into Isaiah 6 a bit more. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that through your word you have revealed yourself to us. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would open our ears. We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that, by, that we might uh, be repentant and turn back to you this morning. Amen. Shalom. My name is Isaiah. I'm the son of Amos. You may know me from such famous works as the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, or that one quote from that song which has the bleating sheep noises in it. You know the one? Ba ba do ba ba. I wrote that. Not the song, but I wrote it. I want to tell you of a story of an amazing encounter. It was in the city of Sydney during the 2000 Olympic Games, in a pub, where an Australian met a Dane among a group of his cousins, all from all over Europe. And they'd come to watch their nations compete at the Olympic Games. After about 30 minutes, this Australian discovered that this group of cousins with whom she'd been spending the night were in fact royalty. And the Dane was Frederick the Crown Prince of Denmark. What an amazing encounter for a Tasmanian-born real estate agent. Well, my people, the descendants of Abraham, we have a fantastic few encounters that we like to recall. One was written down by Moses, the man of God, when he tells of the account of our forefather returning from Babylon, encountering a man with whom he wrestled. Well, the man with whom our forefather wrestled turned out to be the Lord, the God of our father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, like my forefathers, I too had an amazing encounter which I want to tell you about. It was the year 3022, or the year 740 BC as you guys count it. One of the significant events of this year was that Uzziah, son of Amaziah, the king of Judah, died. Both the Kings and the Chronicles teach us that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord Yahweh. But the Chronicler expands on that a bit. He says Uzziah was a good king and God gave him success as long as he sought the Lord Yahweh during the days of Zechariah the prophet. The victory that the Lord Yahweh had given Uzziah made him quite powerful. But he became proud. And he entered the temple to burn incense at the altar where only the sons of Aaron may go. So Yahweh struck Uzziah with leprosy, and he was confined to a house all alone until his death. Up until this incident, things were pretty good in Jerusalem, and in the kingdom of Judah also. Uzziah had sought Yahweh for many years, and he'd reigned for 52. That is a good and healthy reign. He was able to bring much stability and prosperity to Judah. He reclaimed towns and he fortified Jerusalem, equipping it and maintaining a good army. But how do I know this? Being a prophet, I had access to the nobility in Jerusalem. I enjoyed the land flowing with milk and honey and eating off the fat as it came to the city of David. However, this would all change. 
as Uzziah's son would come to rule as king of Judah. Because the people once again turned away from their God to do their corrupt practices. Once again, Assyria, the neighbouring superpower, would come to rule in the Middle East. For a Hebrew such as myself, the death of King Uzziah brought about great hopelessness among my people. During this time, the emperor king of Assyria had shown himself to be a military leader to be feared. So during this time of the death of the king, the people and I were concerned with the question, who would rule the kingdom of Judah? Who would be its king? Would it be Uzziah's son or the king of Assyria? And it was during this time of anxiety and fear that I had the most significant encounter of my life. I saw the king and he was seated on his throne But it wasn't Uzziah's son, and nor was it the Assyrian. It was the Lord Yahweh. And he was high, and then he was exalted on his throne with all his majesty and splendor. And I saw him. The Lord's robe, it filled the temple, his palace on earth. What a fantastic thing to see. I had entered into very rare company that I might see the living God with my own eyes. Amidst the uncertainty of the world, with war and the threat of war coming, the anxiety over the question of the rulership of Judah, this was a fantastic message of hope and comfort for me. The vision itself was a spectacular message because it showed me that Yahweh my God was presiding as king and that he was the true king and has power over everything, including the events that would come to pass in my lifetime. Once I was able to rend my eyes away from my God, the king, I saw above him the seraphim. These were angels of God, and I use the word seraphim because the word literally means burning ones. They looked as if they themselves were on fire. Looking closer at the angels, I saw that they had to cover their feet and their hands and faces using their wings because the glory of the Lord Yahweh was too great for even them to look upon. But what they were doing surprised me most. They were calling to one another continually and they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this struck me most of all. Because whenever God speaks of his own characteristics, he never repeats one. All the good little Hebrew boys and girls would have been able to tell you of the time when the Lord Yahweh passed in front of Moses, the man of God, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. None of those characteristics are ever repeated. And yet here I heard this one characteristic of God repeated threefold. Holy, holy, holy. 
It is the only characteristic of God which is ever repeated. For you today, it would be the equivalent of underlining something, highlighting it, and putting it in all caps. It's called a superlative. Often the Hebrew writers would, we would say, talk about pure gold, and we would write it as gold, gold. The gold of a fear was often gold, gold. It's like saying the best of the best. But here I heard God's holiness raised to the power of three. The best of the best of the best. The very best. Now, to me, this screams one thing. The most important characteristic of my God is his holiness. The seraphs were proclaiming this to me, that the holiness of God was so far beyond anything that I could even imagine or even understand. Now, for the nations around us, they didn't really care that much about the characteristic of holiness. However, for a Hebrew, holiness was very different. Holiness is God's character. It's not, not the essence of him, it's, it is his character. And while the burning ones continued their chorus, the temple which I had seen earlier, being filled with the train of God's robe, had its doorposts and thresholds shaken. The temple was then filled with smoke. That smoke was a sign that God was again in the temple. More precisely, his presence was again in the temple. Just like it had been recorded when he entered the temple in the book of Kings and in the scrolls of Moses. At this, I understood the great fear the Israelites had while on the mountain of Sinai. It's there that Moses recorded that the people trembled at the sound of Yahweh's presence. They stayed at a distance from the mountain and they said to Moses, Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. They understood God's holiness. So when I saw this vision, all I could do was cry out, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. Now I understood my true condition before Yahweh. Truly, I realized my own impurity and the impurity of my people in the light of Yahweh's glory. The impurity of my lips meant that I could not even join in with the seraphs in singing praises to my God. My unclean lips were the evidence of my unclean heart and what great fear and dread this would bring for me and my people. Having seen the king, all I could do was confess my impurity. I couldn't even ask for help. However, what I saw next just blew me away. Rather than falling dead, as I so rightly deserved, one of the burning ones flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. And he brought the coal to my lips, and he touched them with it. And he said to me, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. Now, fire is frequently used as a sign of God's hostile holiness. 
you'll record the flaming sword guarding the garden in Eden, or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or even the time Yahweh burnt whole communities of Israelites during our wandering in the wilderness. But this coal, it came from the altar, a place where holiness was attained and sin forgiven by the blood of the sacrifice. Although I had done nothing and offered no sacrifice, I was proclaimed clean, atoned by God. What an act of grace and mercy that the Lord Yahweh would forgive me of my sin meant that now nothing separated me from my God and my King and singing his praises. But then I heard the voice of the Lord Yahweh speaking and he said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? All I could do was volunteer to serve my King. Like an eager school child, I would shout out, Here am I, send me. And the Lord Yahweh replied, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of these people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The message I was given was completely opposite to what all the other prophets in Judah were teaching. This message from the Lord Yahweh was a message of judgment. And the message itself would even harden the hearts of the people. So I asked the Lord, for how long, Lord? How long shall I preach this message of judgment upon your people? And he replied, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord Yahweh has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And although a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. How great is the message of Yahweh's terrible judgment, that it was to be preached until the very land he had given his chosen people was left deserted. My people and myself of unclean lips and hard hearts will close their eyes and their ears to the coming judgment and bring God's judgment upon themselves. Instead, it was my task to warn of the coming judgment. And there was no hope of putting it off. What a terrible and tragic task I had. The only hope, the only sliver of hope was that the Lord Yahweh promised a tenth would remain. From that stump, a seed can still grow. Well, that's my story, the most amazing encounter of my life when I saw the Lord Yahweh with my own eyes and was given the greatest message to be preached. That ends our first person experience of Yahweh, sorry, of Isaiah chapter six. And as we look at and we see this chapter, we have to ask, what does it mean for us today? 
what lessons can be broken down from this passage? I see two lessons, two important lessons which we should be taking away. The first can be broken into two parts, and it is how truly holy and different God is from us and how high his standard of holiness is. And then the second lesson is the example which Isaiah sets for us, for those who have been made holy by the grace of God. Now this first lesson, lesson, it should be the most evident from the passage. Often the leader of the people of Israel acted like a rudder of a ship. If it was a good king, then the people turned to God. Think of David, Hezekiah, Josiah. During their reigns, people regularly turned back to God. But unfortunately, just as kings were able to lead people to God, they were just as effective at leading people away from God. When Uzziah failed to treat Yahweh as holy by entering the temple, he led the people astray. So the important lesson of Isaiah 6 is the first reminder, the first, first is to remind Isaiah that God's holiness is real. It was to literally put the fear of God back into people. It can be, I think it's really easy for me especially, to forget about God's absolute and terrible holiness in my day-to-day life. I can go around being busy and I can forget how holy God is. I think Isaiah chapter 6 should encourage us to be vigilant in our reminder of God's holiness. God does that in the vision when he appears in his glory, sitting on his throne with the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. It's a simple message. God is holy. And by extension of this, Isaiah actually reveals the second part of this first lesson. God is holy. We are not. Notice that Isaiah doesn't even try to depict God in his holiness. He doesn't actually talk about God's person in the, vis- in the vision. He talks about his robe, but he doesn't talk about what God looks like. Isaiah recognises that he is not holy, and therefore death is what he deserves. When I fail to do my Bible reading and my praying, I easily forget my unholiness. I can go through my day, most of my week, thinking, yeah, I'm all right. I'm not that bad. I think it's a pretty common attitude among Australia, Australians. I'm not that bad. It's so easy to fall into. One example in my life where this happens quite a bit is when I'm driving through Sydney. Now, I'm, honestly, I hate driving through Sydney. And I can get angry really quickly. And it's always the other person's fault. It's never my own fault. Never. But I wonder, how often does this happen in your own life? When it's always the other person's fault. When it's your brother's fault or your sister's fault. Your mother or father's, husband, wife. It's never our own fault. I'm the innocent party. We need to remember our unholiness. And the best way to do that is read our Bible. Our Bible regularly reminds us 
that we need saving by God. The second lesson is that Isaiah teaches us is the call to go and warn people. We've been given this instruction and we are to do it until the very last day when the cities of the world lie in ruin and the houses are deserted until the day when Jesus returns. Now, don't confuse it. I'm not putting us in Isaiah's position for his specific call. I don't expect any of us to have the same call as Isaiah with that terrifying and fantastic vision. But we have an equally valid call by Jesus. Jesus told his followers to go and make disciples and to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that includes the command to warn people of the coming of God's judgment. We, like Isaiah, have a charge and duty to warn our neighbours, our friends, whoever we come in contact with. It's not an easy message to share, but people don't want to hear it. And people make us feel bad for wanting to share with them that we want them to know this good news. We want them to know, on one hand, the bad news, but we want them to know the good news which comes with it. So to finish up this amazing vision from Isaiah 6, it should cause three changes in us this week. First, it should help us to remind us of how holy God is. And the best way to do that in our week is to read our Bibles. The second is to remind us of our unholiness, that we have this need to repent day by day, each day, I need to remember to pray and ask God to forgive me. It keeps me from being big-headed for a start. And that's very important. Again, reading our Bibles and praying helps with this. If we're praying with our Bibles, then we're going to be praying in the right way. And finally, the last lesson is to go. Go and make disciples and teach them of the need to repent, to turn back to God and seek forgiveness in Jesus. Amen.